0: If you would please turn to Psalm 74. Psalm 74. When is the um, question? When's the last time you read this psalm? five minutes ago, right? We just actually read this. For our reading this morning, I took the very arcane and spiritual approach of choosing a text, which is to look ahead one week and see what we were reading. And so today I want to read, again, because we just read Psalm 74. And I want us to go through it and discuss it. I will read it again just as we just read it uh, out of the KJV. I'm going to read it out of the ESV. This is a Mascul of Asaph. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt, Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God and the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand? Your right hand, take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my king, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks, and you dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Yahweh, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places, the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. A few weeks ago, we worked through Psalm 10. It was very similar in the sense that it was the psalmist reaching out to God in need of help. The situation was different there. There it was the wicked. all right. The wicked were unrighteously persecuting the righteous. Uh, that is actually not the situation here. all right. Are there people persecuting the righteous? Are there in this psalm? Let's figure that out in a minute. But before we do that, I'll give you a little chance to think about it. Who is Asaph? This is said to be a masculine of Asaph. Do we know? Leader of the music, if you would turn to First Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter 15. The name of Asaph actually comes up a lot in the Old Testament. And not just in the Psalms, because a lot of the Psalms are related to Asaph. But it comes up... Um, at least 13 places. All right. At least 13 places. We have here in 1 Chronicles 15, David built houses for himself in the city of David and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. We might recall that he was not allowed to build a permanent structure for the, for the, uh, for the ark. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for Yahweh had chosen them to carry the ark of, of Yahweh and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all of Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. And David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites, of the sons of Kohath, Uriel the chief, with 120 of his brothers, of the sons of Merari, Isaiah the chief with 220 of his brothers, and of the sons of Gershom, Joel the chief with 130 of his brothers. And those are the three sons of Levi, Merari, Gershom, Kohath. Now if we just look a little bit further, when you get to line 17, so the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel. And of his brothers Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and of the sons of Merari, their brothers, Ethan, the son of Cushiah. Ethan is sometimes called Jedathan, depending on your passage you're looking at. And their job was, as Edward said, uh, their job was actually musical, especially Asaph. Uh, We'll look at some passages. We will see Asaph and his entire line ends up being in charge of musical-related things. Uh, for for the for the people of Israel turn back a few chapters first to first chronicles chapter 9 if we look at first uh, first chronicles 9 14 of the Levites, shemaiah the son of hashab son of Azrakam, um, son of Hashabiah and the sons of Merari, and Bakar, Haresh, Galal, and Mataniah, sons of Micah, son of Zikri, son of Asaph, and Obadiah, the son of Shemaiah, son of Galal, son of Jedathan. There's that name, Jedathan again. So you've got these people once more. You've got him mentioned other times in 1 Chronicles. Uh, He's still alive in 2 Chronicles, if you would turn there. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. So he was appointed during the reign of of David. We'll look in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. This is the ark being brought into the temple. And if you look at, for example, verses, uh, let's start at verse 10. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, where Yahweh made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, and their sons and kinsmen arrayed in fine linen. So you've got, once again, those three, those three particular descendants of Levi playing a major role, and of course, you notice there, Asaph. So Asaph, as a figure, was somebody who was alive during the time of David and the time of Saul. And so we might want to consider that in terms of the psalm. But let's go forward just a little bit. Let's look at Ezra, if you would. Ezra chapter 2. If you just turn a little bit to the right, you'll get to Ezra. Now, this is a very long time in the future. By the time Ezra and Nehemiah happened, all right, you've got David, you've got Solomon, then after Solomon, the kingdom splits, and you have two different kingdoms, north and south. The northern kingdom... Persists as does the Southern Kingdom for a while, but eventually the Northern Kingdom the Northern Kingdom is taken into captivity by Syria in seven twenty two, and then later, and so that would be almost three hundred years after David. And then later five eighty seven, you've got Judah, the Southern Kingdom, taken into captivity with Babylon, Ezra and Nehemiah still later, because they go into captivity and then they come back out of captivity, and that's actually part of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so if you look at the beginning of, of Ezra chapter 2, uh, my Bible has a subtitle set right there that says the exiles return. I don't want to read the whole thing, uh, but if you go down to 40. And so these are exiles returning out of captivity from Babylon. And because for various reasons it's very important to, to remember what tribe you were in because it could determine your function, uh, they remembered. All right, And you've got here... In verse 40, the Levites, the son of Jeshua and Kadmiel of the sons of Hadoviah, and the singers, the sons of Asaph, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, and so forth. So even the singers now still the sons of Asaph. Now this is not the sons of Asaph. These are long descendants. This is hundreds of years later. Asaph's descendants are still singing. So with all that in mind, let's turn back to Psalm. 74. With all that in mind, let's think about the psalm. And like before, all right, I want us to think about what the psalm teaches us about God, but also teaches us about man. And also, let's think about what the psalmist here is saying. All right? What's his emotions? To what extent are his emotions correct? Is he right in everything he's feeling? All right. And contextually, what could this possibly be that we're talking about? So let's take a look at the first three verses. Oh, God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. So I'm going to ask, context. What has happened? Why is Asaph, or perhaps a descendant of Asaph, upset about? Think about the text. I'll give you a second. Okay. Yes. Okay. It very well could be. I tend to default to that myself. Why would you say that, though?
1: It says you're, you know, they destroyed everything in the sanctuary. You know, it's, uh, right. From what it sounds like, it's like my home has been ravaged under attack.
0: Right. Now, the Assyrians attacked Judah, and they attacked Jerusalem, but they didn't make it in right? They were around the city, so that doesn't fit. Um, What you need is you need a situation where not only has the sanctuary been ransacked, but it has been left in ruins, right? I mean, notice here he calls it the perpetual ruins, all right? The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Before we go back and think about the psalmist's state of mind, let's read the next section as well. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God and the land. And so you've got an intensification of this, all right? What do you mean by perpetual ruins? Well, it's like some people went in, and it's like a forest. And they went in, and they just leveled the whole thing with their axes. Except it's not a forest. It's the sanctuary, all right? They went and just leveled the whole thing, burned the whole thing down. Now, let's go back and think about the psalmist, all right? You've got often you've got your mind and you've got your heart and they're not always congruent, right? Let's think about the psalmist. Let's think about his words. Oh God, back to verse one, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? What's, what's wrong there? What's wrong in his feelings?
1: He doesn't understand
0: why God let all of that happen. <laughs> I don't think that's it, actually. I think he sees what? them as the hand of God. I think he sees them as the hand of God. Why are you angry? All right, why you're angry? But so if you're a um, if you're a singer of Israel and you know the law, all right, there's only one answer to why God has let people destroy the temple: yeah, sin. sin. All right. So I don't think his question is why did you let this happen. Why is it not stopping? Why is it not stopping? right? Why is it not stopping? Oh, God, why do you cast us off forever? All right? If you look at the law, God, God did not say he would cast Israel off forever. Actually, he said, I will punish you. I will take you into exile. And then I will come back and return and exile you. You've got here the psalmist in this first part of the psalm. He's singing his feelings that are not in accord with revelation. Reality is, though, the psalmist is not, he knows this is not the situation. If you go to verse 22 at the very end, all right, this is his mind, all right, versus his heart. His mind, all right, is like James, all right? He is now praying in faith, all right? Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. In his mind, he knows. All right? I can request this because of various things within this. I mean, God has made a covenant with his people. He knows. But in the midst of the issues, where do, what does his feelings say? God has cast us off forever. Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? I, don't, I think he knows, all right? I think it's a time thing. Why does it continue to smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. So Asaph was alive uh, during the time of David, right? He, was one of, he, was, he would have been amongst David's men. And so there would have been times before David was king that he would have a reason to wonder about Saul and what's going on. But that can't be the context here. Okay, because when did God make his dwelling in Zion? When the ark was taken to Zion, all right? Uh, God's dwelling place was with the ark. That's the purpose of the Ark. This is where God would be. This is why they would take it into into military situations. Bring your God with you as you go into war. All right? Um, so, therefore, this can't be before then. It's really got to be later. Uh, Bill, what were you going to say? I was say? just wondering, is this post exile or pre So, it depends. If it's pre if if Asaph is actually the one who wrote it, then. I don't know where to put it, because he did not live until after the exile. But if this is referring to an Asaphite, which some people would translate it that way, then it could actually be at any point after Asaph's life. And so that's the way I take it, because the I, I don't see a context where this could occur during Asaph's lifetime, because you know Asaph was around for the temple, but the temple was certainly not destroyed during his actual it was lifetime
1: like you're coming back from exile. I'm just looking at
0: everything
1: like this is so bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's confusing
0: God's discipline and chastisement with abandonment. That seems to be at least a feeling there, and I, I, I agree. I see it there. But it also ends in faith. Right? So... What's the difference between this grumbling and the grumbling in the wilderness that God judged so much? Right. Good question. What is, the, what is the difference between this grumbling and the grumbling in the wilderness? All right. The grumbling in the wilderness, Jeff, if you want to tell us. You're, you're just stretching. Um, grumbling in the wilderness was essentially lack of faith and dissatisfaction with God. God, you never should have taken us out of Egypt. We were happy there. We had food there. We didn't have to worry about our water there. All right? This is not, God, I wish you would have just not taken us out of Egypt and we'll just worship other gods. That should have been, that's not his feeling here. His feeling is, God is with us. And his feeling is, God will redeem us. It's not clear at the beginning that he will. But by the end, he's like, do it. You said you would do it. I'm going to ask you to do it. Defend your own name as a part of this as well, right? Defend your own name and come back. So I think there's a big difference between recognizing things are bad and I can ask God for help and things are bad and I don't want God. A very big difference. And that's the problem with the wilderness is things are bad and we want to abandon God.
1: Another thing I noticed is that in the Exodus account, um, in the wilderness, um,
0: the Israelites
1: will always complain to Moses. Moses, why did you do this? You know, yeah. Would you, you know, they, like they, they wouldn't talk to God. You know. They weren't uh, casting all their anxieties on him, whereas this seems to be like, yes, I am voicing my complaints, but I am doing it in a prayer-like fashion to the Almighty.
0: Yeah. And he is, in fact, casting his anxieties in the end of, how are we going to solve this problem? We are not going to solve this problem. God is ultimately, he's calling God to ultimately solve the problem, right? Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is a man of faith. This is, it is normal for a person of faith to experience issues and have doubts and problems. All right? The difference is what happens when they happen. What's their life of faith like? Yeah. It's okay to cry if you do it the right way. Yeah. God can handle your complaints, all right. God can handle God can handle it, all right. That doesn't excuse lack of faith, all right. But yeah, you do have examples of the psalmist. You have David frequently saying, "I'm righteous." bad stuff's happening to me. You said I would be king. Solve it, God. Right? Very bold. So, yeah. So, we've got a picture. All right? We've got, at this point, in the psalm, if we don't look ahead to the faith at the end, you've got a very, very bleak notion. All right? Now, some people have actually pushed it later than the destruction of of Babylon, partially for verse 8, or destruction by Babylon. They've burned all the meeting places of God in the land. Some people push it later and say, no, this is actually something later because, well, they were only supposed to worship God in Zion, and this is referring to synagogues. It's unclear. So some people do push it significantly later. But I still take it as more likely Babylonian destruction. Verse 9, now here's my question, and depending on your translation, it'll be more obvious or less obvious what's going on. Verse 9, what is its relationship with what came before? There is, a, there is something specifically verbal in the text here that relates this to what comes before. What do you see? And if you need to, just read through the previous part of the text. Like we've been here and tore down whatever decorative things were in the temple. So if you walk through the ruins, you would see Babylonian shields set up and the scarlet, the, the beautiful temple work was gone. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like, this is like offensive. You don't know the statue where you've got a bunch of Americans raising a flag, right? Do we know the context of that? Yeah, Second World War, right? When would Americans be doing this? Well, we come in and defeated enemy raising our flag, right? I think of, when I think of this, I think of that. Except I also bring in here an overtly spiritual element to this. Because if you look at verse 9, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there's none among us who knows how long. We think of war as a secular thing. He did not think of war as a secular thing. All right? The ancient Near East did not look at war as a secular event. All right, It was their, gods, their armies backed by their gods are attacking us backed by our god. And as long as they were righteous, this is the message of Joshua, right? As long as the Israelites are righteous, invincible. When they sin, you're gonna lose to everybody, even if you're stronger. All right, that's the message all the way back to Joshua. You've that's that's why the psalmist here, all right? It's like why why did all of this happen? Well God must have let it happen. And now you've got these pagans going on to Mount Zion and putting up their signs, putting up their stuff. Where's our sign? All right? Where's our sign? Where's our prophet? All right? So it's not, this is not a secular thing at all for him. It is, that's a, there should not be the signs of pagan gods on that, on that mountain. That's, that's our God's dwelling place, right? And where's the prophet? Going back to the time element. All right. Is there none none among us who knows how long? How long? How long until this state of affairs is over? All right. Is there none among us who knows how long? How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? The answer, of course, is no. Right. As a matter of fact, the temple was rebuilt. Right. It was rebuilt in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then it was even expanded later, for example, under Herod. And so, would the temple ever be rebuilt? Would the perpetual ruins ever become unperpetual ruins? Well, yes, they would no longer be ruins later on. All right? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them? We know the image of the right hand, right? For at least a right-handed person, that's your strongest arm. This is military. God, come. All right? Take your uh, right hand out of your cloak and come defeat them. Now, let's talk about that God. Verse 12. Yet... Yet, well, in the midst of, it's a mess, in the midst of all this mess, yet God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. All right, what is salvation here? Don't answer that yet. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters and the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. What is salvation? in the midst of the earth for him Hint, you know, we talk about salvation, we often think of it as an eternal thing. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. It's something more earthy, something more temporal, I think, is what's on his mind. Safety from his enemies, safety from his enemies I think, is a big part of it. And really, you could, I think you can boil it down to just safety. What is the relationship between working salvation in the midst of the earth and all this creation talk. All right? Well, if we think back to the Genesis account, all right? What must happen before man can be created? There must be a safe place. Right? Man, as we as we know, right? You plop a man in the middle of the sea, he's going to die. So, he's... I think he's going back to the beginning and saying, I mean, it's bigger than just thinking of just my physical safety at this moment. God has so arranged, right? So, he so arranged creation in such a way that he could set up a situation where man could live and thrive, all right? Which, of course, will ultimately lead to Abraham and the people, all right? But God must do all of that. So, in other words, everything that is related to safety and man's kind's ability to live and just survive ultimately comes from the very first act of, you know, controlling the chaos. All right. Now we've we've mentioned this before. All right. Um, in the Old Testament, the, the the sea is seen as an image of chaos. All right, which makes sense. I mean it wasn't until relatively modern times where we were able to genuinely safely right go on the water, right? Modern battleships, modern aircraft carriers, awfully safe just in terms of weather, all right? They can see the hurricane coming, they can move. They're awfully safe places. This is not true for the ancient world in terms of boats. You go on the water, that's a dangerous thing. Didn't stop them. And therefore, a lot of them died. But it was a very dangerous thing for them. And if they think about the big creatures in the sea, these are, well, quite monstrous beings. All right? And so you've got here uh, a lot of uh, a focus of basically God taking chaos and putting an arrangement in place. All right? Let's see how the chaos worked. You divided the sea by your might. All right, divided the sea. That's, you know, I think part of making land visible, right? You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. We'll talk about Leviathan, all right? What are we talking about here? This is a reference to a god, essentially, all right? You don't see this in the Genesis account, but what you've got here, uh, as you've got in Job, right? If we think about Job reflecting on the Genesis account, he's like... What happened when creation happened? Well, you have the, the sons of God rejoicing with God when this happens. And so before the creation of the world, you've got spiritual beings, clearly. you've got this here as well. all right? You've got what was going on even at that point. Did You, you already had, must have had a rebellion by this point, because you've got what is essentially an ancient evil God that God, in, dis, in subduing the water, must defeat and destroy for there to be safety. So therefore, for people, not for himself, for people, right? He crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Basically, day, night, land, Seasons, all established by God. This is very much, I think, for him, salvation. This is life, all right? The ability to live, the ability to be. But now we jump ahead in verse 18. Remember this, O Yahweh, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. You do not deliver, excuse me, do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts, do not forget the life of your poor forever. This bit here about remember this, O oh Yahweh, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. You'll see this a lot, a number of times in the in the law in the Torah. All right. I mean, Moses, when when the golden calf incident happens, God says, okay. Let's just wipe all these people out, Moses, and we'll start again with you, all right? you remember that? What does Moses say? Moses is like, no, let's let's not do that. He intercedes on their behalf, all right? One of the arguments he uses, and this comes up a number of times in the Torah, is what is everybody going to think, all right? We just came out of Egypt, right? And Moses had gone to Egypt and says, this God, by this specific name, Yahweh. All right, wants these, this group of people, to go out of Egypt. All right, so Moses is saying this. Pharaoh says, uh, "No way!" Right? We know this story. No way. Over and over. No way. No way. Okay, I'll let him. No, I won't let him. All right. And so finally, you've got ten plagues, and finally, all right, he has to acquiesce. Okay. That God, by that name, is too powerful for me. I will let my people go. And then they leave. Then he changes his mind again, right? And he goes after them. And what happens? That God, by that name, defends them and wipes out the enemy. All right? And so now you've got Moses when God says, you know what? These people are extremely stiff-necked, wicked people. Let's just, I'm just going to end them. And we'll continue to fulfill the Abrahamic promise through you. Because Moses was the descendant of Abraham. That could work. And Moses says, no. What are they going to say? What are they going to say? All right. They know your name in Egypt. They know your name. What are they going to say if you, who has your name associated with all these people, all right, let all of them die? What? That's not that's not bringing honor to your name, God. And God listens to him. Right? And the Israelites survive. And so you've got here the same notion. Remember this. Yahweh, how the enemy scoffs and the foolish people reviles your name. Remember, warfare in the ancient world is not secular. All right, If Babylon defeats Israel, that's because Babylon's God is more powerful. That's what they would think. And so the Asaphite, whoever he is, is looking at that, going, "You can't let this stand, all right? You can't let this stand because of what, because of how it looks. You can't let them keep their banners on the hill. That would make you look bad, all right." Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever See the contrast, right? Dove, not a particularly fierce animal, right? Do not deliver the dove, your dove, to the wild beasts. The psalmist, right, does not look at Israel as strong, right? Israel is basically a defenseless bird, right? Do not deliver what's left, essentially, right? This weak little remnant of yours. do not deliver this weak little remnant to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant. Have regard for the agreement you made. All right? The agreement you made, not only with Abraham, because you can go back to that covenant, but also have regard for the agreement you made with Moses and with the people at Mount Sinai, that even if there is an exile, that you would come back and deliver them. Have regard for that agreement that you made. That's what a covenant is. It's an agreement. It's a contract. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise Against you, which goes up continually. This last part, going with that same notion as before, don't let them revile your name. The longer you let them have their standards on our mountain, you are letting them revile your name. Defend your own cause. Defend your own cause. Remember the foolish. How the foolish scoff at you all the day. All right? In other words Take from the fold of your garment your right hand and destroy them. So, all right, let's talk about the psalmist again. Is he righteous? Is he sinning? Or is this a pattern we should follow? I mean if we look at the psalm, right, what do we learn? Do we need do we need to fall into despair like he seems to at the beginning? No. Do we need, as we pray to God, to end in faith? Yes. Right? Of course this is a psalm, right? This isn't just this isn't just the psalmist is feeling this and just goes, I'm just gonna write my words down. No, this is this is actually a psalm. Composed, All right? We should look at it that way. And so the psalmist reflecting, right, on their current situation and their own feelings. All right? This isn't his, this isn't him in his uh, right mind. This is exactly how I'm feeling all the time. This is, I take it, is him thinking about his own feelings and going, all right, I'm going to write a song to take people, to show people, here's the path from despair, all right? Here's the path from despair to faith in the end. Because that's what a psalm is. If it's just someone complaining, maybe not. But that's not this. All right? Think of it as a purposely composed thing. What's the path? In this particular case, what's the path? I mean, it's going to be different depending on the situation. All right? It was a little different for Psalm 10, where he's going from, God, why aren't you listening to me? Do you not see all the wicked in the land doing bad things? All right? That's, that would have been pre-exile. All right? This is there in the land and there's too much wickedness. All right? Here it's you seem to have abandoned us. All right? But we know you haven't. All right? What's the path from the feelings of abandonment? The path is remembering, all right, that God is all-powerful. That's what you get in in verses 12 through 17. Not only is God all-powerful, I mean, who else can wrangle creation and put the stars and the sun in place and set them in order, all right? God is all-powerful, and he has created in the earth a place where we can live, all right? So I'll remember that God is all-powerful, and I will also appeal to God, all right? Not that we owe, not that God owes something to us because we're so great. That's not the appeal at all here, right? It's not an appeal, Asaph or the Asaphite is not appealing to, I'm fantastic. You should come save me. That does not exist in this psalm at all. It is entirely a, we're your people. All right, and you said you would be with your people. All right. You've made agreements with us. May I remind you of the Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic agreement. May I remind you of how you brought us out of Egypt. All right. You've made agreements with us. All right. You have said that you would be with us. Therefore, all right, call it a request. Call it a command. Whatever you want to call it. Arise. Verse 22. Oh, God, defend your cause. All right. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes. All right. How dare he speak to God that way? How dare he? He's just telling God what he's already agreed to do. So, we can do the same. God has made promises to us. Has he not? God has made promises to us. If we were to follow the psalmist, all right, even if, even if bad things are happening, whether it's wicked wicked people in the land and it's a problem, whether it's outside forces have come and destroyed them, whatever it is, we can appeal to God and we can appeal to God's nature and say, God... Arise and defend your cause. That is something we can and something we absolutely should do. Any questions or any thoughts? Before we dismiss. Yeah.
1: Verse 18 says, uh, remember how the enemy girls insults of Jacoba and how a foolish nation blasphemes your name. So that's before you kind of get to verse 22 when you, sort of changes this tone and gets more faithful but I think just calling the nations foolish for blaspheming God is sort of implicit like he can do something about it so you're a fool if you're going to blaspheme his name
0: agreed 100% yes Lydia Uh, it's an image of the the enemy has come into the land and is destroying the people cutting them down at the roots the concrete thing here is specifically right the destruction of the temple now if you can get to the temple and chop it down what does that mean that means you've already beat all the people right so yeah that's right
1: God
0: abandoned the Absolutely did. Yeah. And the Asaphite here is asking, come back. Stop, God. Stop abandoning your temple. Yeah. Yes, Jennifer?
1: In verse twenty-three, he says, "Don't forget the clamor of your foes, of those who rise against you." And it seems like there's a shift from they're attacking us to
0: they're attacking you. It's all about you. Mm-hmm.
1: Which, um, if they're feeling like, "Well, you're letting this happen to us because we were unfaithful," then it's. It's more like they're tools in your hand. If God uses the enemies of the Israelites to punish them for unfaithfulness, then he's using the enemies. Like they're not, he's not a victim of those enemies. Yeah. But like, why is he now saying, these are your enemies? It doesn't seem like the enemies are really a problem for God.
0: So you've got in the prophets, this does get explained, all right, because let's, let's let's state the problem, all right? The problem is, right, that God uses these people to come destroy the Israelites. How can they also be his enemies because he's using them as a tool? You've got an explanation for this, and what they're basically saying is, and this is something I believe against Babylon specifically, all right, um, where the prophet explains God used Babylon as a tool. That does not make the Babylonian attack a sin. However, you were sinful when you attacked, all right? Now I'm thinking it might have been Assyria, all right? You did not have to be, the prophet calls out, you did not have to be this ferocious. You did not have to blaspheme God when you did this, but you did. So therefore, are they the enemy of God or are they the tool of God? And the answer is ultimately both, because God uses them to attack Israel, but also when they do so, they don't do so faithfully in command of God, worshiping him, they attack Israel and blaspheme God while they're doing it. So that makes them both a tool and an enemy. And so it would have been—it was no sin for Babylon to destroy Jerusalem, zero. It was no sin for Syria to attack the Northern Kingdom and to take them into exile. That was no sin at all. The Assyrians, though, were known for their brutality, of being extru- of torturing people, of being extremely evil in their attacks, um, and that was their sin. In the case of Babylon, what's the sin? They attack the people of God. They go up. They take the temple. Then they put, all right, Marduk. Boom. Right. right. I'm going to raise the flag of Marduk on Mount Zion and not the flag of Yahweh. And that's the sin. So, yeah. So, it all depends on how. God uses instruments and they're going to be righteous or not righteous regardless of how God, of how God uses them. It's their own actions that makes them righteous or not. let's be dismissed. We're running out of time. We'd love to talk about any more of this um, during lunch. Hardly anyone ever takes me up on that. But if you want to, I'd love to do it. Uh, Kesa, will you please pray for us and dismiss us? Thank you.